to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's podcast, Digging Into DEI in Pharmacy Practice. These episodes will explore the issues, experiences, and perspectives of underrepresented communities in ASHP's membership, including BIPOC and LGBTQA plus members. My name is Lindsay Childs-Keen, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. In today's episode, we will be chatting with Rena Gosser, the Clinical Manager for Ambulatory Care at University of Washington Medicine, Harborview Medical Center, and Sarah Anderson, an Associate Professor of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, about the use of race in clinical algorithms and why we as pharmacists need to question the incorporation of race into algorithms. Both Rena and Sarah served on the ASHP Council on Therapeutics, where they did significant research on this topic. Thanks for joining me today, Rena and Sarah. First, I want to start out by giving some examples of clinical algorithms in general, as well as some examples of commonly used clinical algorithms that include race. And so that's a great, uh, great place to start, Lindsay. So I, I think that we know there are a whole host of clinical algorithms out there. One of the things that is top of my mind is something like an estimated glomerular filtration rate or EGFR. We know that we use different equations like the pooled cohort equation that we use to calculate ASCBD risk scores or even American Heart Association's Get With the Guidelines calculator that predicts in-hospital mortality for patients when they're admitted with acute decompensated heart failure. And interestingly, all of those also happen to use race as a component of their algorithm. Yeah, Sarah, those were great examples. There are also a couple other ones that we see, like the osteoporosis risk score, uh, which we use to determine you know, whether a woman is at low, moderate, or high risk for low bone density in order to guide decisions about screening with DEXA scans, uh, which requires input as to whether the patient is black or not black. From the PEED standpoint, there's a UTI calculator, which estimates the risk of UTI in kiddos 2 to 23 months of age as to whether to pursue urine testing for definitive diagnosis of a UTI. And that also requires self-identification or the parent's identification of whether that child is fully or partially black. So it sounds like we use a lot of clinical algorithms in practice. And out of all of those that you all mentioned, I think EGFR is the clinical algorithm most commonly seen and used by pharmacists that include a race component. So what are some impacts of including race in this particular clinical algorithm? So EGFR and, and the use of race as that correction factor can have major implications for the clinical course of a patient. You know, when we look back at how the use of this originated, especially when we think about the CKD, EPI, and the MDRD equations, these were generated in pretty large cohorts of patients who underwent that gold standard measurement of what a true GFR actually is. Um, so infusing iothalamate or some other chemical in the blood to quantify that urine clearance. And, and those investigators, they, they found that black race was independently associated with a slightly higher GFR. And it, this has been used to justify the claim that black individuals release more creatinine into the blood, perhaps because of more muscle mass, although there is really limited data to support this claim. 
Whereas when we think about older individuals and women, where we consider them to have lower muscle mass, there's quite a a larger and stronger evidence base to support that claim. Whereas for black individuals, there, there really isn't. So when we apply this correction factor, we end up reporting higher EGFR values for patients identified as black, suggesting that they they have better kidney function than what they actually may have. Again, it's an estimate. So these higher EGFR values can delay referral to specialist care. They can place black patients in the incorrect kidney disease status tier or in more extreme cases in more extreme cases, um, impact their ability to be listed for things like kidney transplantation. So when you think about it, you could technically have two patients, same gender, same age, same serum creatinine, but that black patient will have that race correction factor applied, and that could lead them to not qualifying for a spot on the kidney transplant wait list. So when we use that race correction factor, we end up reporting higher EGFR values for patients that are um, identified as black, suggesting that they have better kidney function when um, they may not actually have the function that we've identified. Um, So these higher EGFR values can delay referral to specialist care. Um, They could be placed in incorrect kidney disease status or the more extreme cases impact their ability to be listed for kidney transplantation, for example. So when we think about how we care for patients, we could have two patients that are the same gender and age, same serum creatinine, um, but the black patient will have that race correction factor applied, and that could lead them to not qualifying for a spot on the kidney transplant wait list or not allowing them to have optimal medication treatment options. So um, that race correction factor does not have a benign impact on on how we care for our patients, so it really should be considered more carefully. Thanks for going through all of that detail, Rena. Um, So I guess the follow-up to this is that I've heard that some institutions are removing EGFR calculations entirely from their electronic medical records. So Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about important considerations and stakeholders to be involved when determining when and if a clinical algorithm should be removed? Yeah, that's a great question and very timely for me because my institution did exactly that last summer. And so really the way that my institution chose to approach this was to um, get together a group of subject matter experts. And so in the case of removing EGFR, this came from our um, one of our internationally renowned uh, nephrologists and a group of his colleagues, uh, both within the institution and with our local school of medicine. And they went through a very comprehensive and systematic process to review the evidence. And what they concluded was that EGFR and race-adjusted algorithms can guide decisions in ways that may direct more attention or resources to white patients compared to non-white patients, which Rena articulated very well uh, in the question before this. And so really... the. So at my institution, the way that we handled this particular situation was uh, grouping together that 
mix of subject matter experts to do a deep dive into the literature and, you know, develop conclusions that then they shared with a larger kind of C-suite and larger group within my institution. And then there was a huge communication process that had to occur. So, you know, everyone, you know, from the top down needed to be informed of this change. And I, I feel like our unsung heroes in this case were our, you know, health information technology experts that had to do the changes, make the changes to our electronic health record to make this change in our system. So as of basically the end of July, when our um, basic metabolic panels report out, which includes a calculated EGFR, our um, system, our EHR, no longer reported out EGFR data that was corrected for race. And so, you know, I, I think that it was a solid process to do this, to get the right people in the room, to have the subject matter experts really start the conversation and, and make and share some of these decisions. But then it took several iterations of uh, education of all the house staff to make sure everyone was on the same page. And I think it was particularly important at my health system because many of our, you know, both attendings, kind of regular staff, as well as many of our residents cross through not only my institution, but other health systems in the area. And so it was an interesting change in our electronic health record that really needed to be communicated clearly and carefully so that those who work in different health systems were aware of what was changing within ours. And so I think, you know, as, as far as when to determine whether this should be done or not done, I think there's more and more momentum around, you know, the conversation of using race in clinical decision-making, and it's definitely under scrutiny. So I, I think the time is now to have those conversations, and, and I hope that other health systems will take similar steps to review their clinical algorithms and, and make appropriate decisions. Thanks, Sarah. So Sarah, what are your thoughts on how we should teach our learners about clinically evaluating patients of different races when some health systems include EGFR with the race adjustment and others don't? Yeah, I agree. This is such an important question. And, and I think my perspective is it's important to teach learners about the pros and cons and potential for errors with any test. In my clinic, we often talk about things like the standard error around certain lab values. For instance, we know that our lipid panels are reported out with an accuracy within six milligrams per deciliter. So not affected by race, but we just know that there's you know certain caveats basically to these lab values. And so that should be a discussion um, with any lab lab value and, and any algorithm with all of the components included. And so I think when it comes to things like the component of correcting EGFR for race, it's important to have a discussion with learners about how this calculation came to be. So providing them the historical perspective of how we got here and then transition to what we know now about the limitations of, of using race in this particular algorithm. Because we can't predict where students and residents will train and ultimately work and which uh, processes their institution's lab will use, I feel like the learner having the historical perspective and the appreciation for the why is really important, and that will help them navigate different health systems and institutions, and that hopefully by educating our learners on issues like this, then they can become champions for change at institutions that may be using antiquated algorithms or antiquated pieces to algorithms. But I, I think my bottom line is uh, it's an important conversation to have, and it's good for learners to know all of the perspectives on the situation so that as they navigate different health systems and different institutions, 
they have things squared away in their mind because the last thing I would want to have happen is a patient safety issue when they're moving between institutions and and trying to reframe their point of reference for some of these lab values. And so, you know, again, I think it speaks to the importance of health systems and institutions having these conversations uh, so that we can uh, move together as a profession and, and make sure that we're using appropriate algorithms for taking care of our patients. I like the idea, Sarah, of teaching the the learners the why behind the algorithm. That way they are prepared no matter where they end up, because we know that there's lots of different health systems and other positions that are available to our learners, both for training and for job purposes. So let me take sort of a step back because it's clear that health disparities exist and it's often along racial lines. So Rena, what are some important considerations when doing research and interpreting research to ensure that the results are robust and are not subject to confounders? That's a great question. You know, I I think this all goes back to just how we learn to interpret the literature in our didactic studies and and applying that during residency training. So as a a drug information nerd, I'm going to take the time to um, just put a plug in to just take MedLit seriously. You know, while you're in school, when you're in residency, when you're out on practice, just keep working at it. This is a, a really necessary component of your practice. And and also, as Sarah mentioned, you know, encourage your learners to do the same, instill in it as a process that they are constantly applying and going through. As our profession has moved towards more clinical practice, you know, practicing as providers, um, we, we frequently refer to, you know, national guidelines to inform how we practice. So although these are collated and published by experts in the field, continue to do your due diligence and just dig to see where any of these race-based recommendations are coming from, dig back, look at what's being referenced, pull up those old trials, request a copy, a scanned copy if you need to do that, and make sure that as a practitioner, you're looking to see if there's strong evidence that supports the use of this information. So I like to look at kind of three core questions when looking at at the evidence, and this could probably be a whole podcast in of itself, but I'll just briefly like go through the, the three questions that, you know, I map out in my mind. And that the first one is, is the need for that race correction based on actual robust evidence and statistical analyses? So there should be some consideration of internal, external validity, um, confounders that may be present, or then any bias that may be present between groups of, of study subjects. The second question is, and it may sound kind of simple, but is there an actual causal mechanism for the racial difference that justifies that race correction? So specifically, are they implying that there's a documented genetic marker, or is it a claim just that, you know, this patient population has a larger muscle mass, for example. And then the third, which I think is the most critical, is if you were to implement this race correction in your clinical decision-making, would it relieve or would it make health inequity worse? 
So if you're saying no to the first two, or if it's just extremely difficult to trace back where the information originated, ask yourself if implementing this race correction will help or harm the patient and potentially further worsen health inequities that we know are present in our health system today. So it, it comes to the crux of that, that final question. Even in your day-to-day, if you see a patient fall below a threshold for a given therapy, it may be worth reevaluating if that race correction is actually going to play some larger downstream harm for that particular patient. I think those are three great tips for all of us, Rena. Thank you so much for sharing. So a topic that is gaining steam and has uh, already a, a pretty interesting following and acceptance and level of interest within the pharmacy profession is pharmacogenomics and precision medicine. So how does the use of race and clinical algorithms compare to the use of pharmacogenomics in precision medicine? You know, I think this is one of those questions where it's, it's important for us to note that race is a, is a social construct and not based in biology or a specific genetic marker, classifying patients according to their ancestry, so not including race or ethnicity, has legitimate purpose. So, for example, identifying patients at risk for complications from rare gene mutations like sickle cell trait or cystic fibrosis, those come from legitimate genetic markers that we can measure, say they're present or absent, and then it can drive our care. So kind of going back to the EGFR issue, this is instead asserting that existing organ function is different between individuals who are otherwise identical except for race. And we know that people can identify and have a history or a background with multiple races. They could be mixed race. So to put someone in a particular bucket, and these race correction factors don't tell you if someone is 50% black, then do this, 25% black, then do that. So that tells you that there is some grayness here that should warrant red flags in our mind to, to practice in a different way. Also, when we look at population studies, they have only revealed small differences in gene distributions between racial groups. And then when we look at individuals of the same race, so to speak, there's wider variation there. So we're kind of practicing opposite of of what these robust population studies have actually shown. And then when we think about just the history of medicine in general, there's quite a lot of evidence that Racial categories were often just generated arbitrarily, and at times they were implemented to reinforce social inequality. So if there are genetic markers that we identify that indicate a preferred path of treatment, that is absolutely appropriate and in line with how we want to see clinical care conducted for our patients. I have nothing to add because that was amazing. (laughs) Excellent. So... We've really just scratched the surface on this evolving topic. So Sarah and Rena, if you could both maybe give us a couple of resources that you would recommend to our listeners if they want to read more about the use of race and clinical algorithms. 
Yeah, I think as this topic has gained momentum, we're seeing more and more kind of viewpoints, editorials, and even studies within uh, the medical and pharmacy literature that that speaks well to this. Rena did a great job of informing me that the New England Journal of Medicine has a series on race and medicine. And I believe that there is no paywall or um, any limitation to accessing all of the articles that are contained within that series. And so Again, there's a whole variety of editorials and viewpoints and clinical trial data or reanalysis of clinical trial data that's really important surrounding all of these topics that we've we've talked about today. And I think similarly, I found um, some good viewpoints within the JAMA journals as well. And so a couple or one in particular that I really like uh, is an editorial called Race and Pharmacogenomics, Personalized Medicine or Misguided Practice. And then there's also a great article in Circulation, um, the Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes Journal, and it's entitled Race and Ethnicity, a Part of the Equation for Personalized Clinical Decision-Making. And so I think that when you do your, your lit searches, uh, you're going to find a whole host of, um, of items that will be important to review. I'd agree with Sarah on all of those. And I just want to take the time to put a plug in for us as pharmacists to, you know, we're using many of these every day. Um, so really challenging um, ASHP members and listeners to examine how you're using them explore, do research, you know, put yourself out there, publish, share, um, because that's the only way that we can strive towards uh, more equitable practice for our patients. Well, I think that's a great way to end the podcast, Rena. So that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Rena Gosser and Sarah Anderson for joining us today to discuss the use of race and clinical algorithms. Join us here on the ASHP official Digging Into DEI and Pharmacy Practice podcast series, where we will continue to trace practice journeys, examine the impact of allyship and intersectionality, and stress the critical need for cultural competency among the pharmacy workforce. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.